You're listening to the Village Church Podcast Show, episode 32. Josh Patterson. I'm joined today by guest host David Roark. David serves as our creative and resources director here at the Village Church. Also happens to be the producer of this particular podcast. David, thanks for joining me. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited about our conversation today with Christianity Today's critic at large, Alyssa Wilkinson, and she's super sharp. We're going to talk with her about movies, her new book that she wrote, How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith, and Politics at the End of the World. So, any book with a title like that, I'm eager to find out what's inside. And so uh, at the end of the show, we're going to just kind of take a stroll down memory lane and, and kind of look back at some highlights from the spring and talk a little bit about our hopes for the fall. So it should be a good conversation. to the conversation now with Alyssa Wilkinson. She has been a film critic at Christianity Today since 2013 and has written for a lot of publications such as the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Rolling Stone, and others. She also serves and teaches English and humanities at the King's College in Manhattan. As I said earlier, she co-wrote a book with Robert Jalstra called How to Survive the Apocalypse, Zombies, Cylons, Faith and Politics at the End of the World. Alyssa, welcome to the Village Church Podcast Show. Yeah, welcome. It's good to be here. Thanks and, for having me. Yeah, we're honored. We're honored that you're on with us. And as you said, you were on a train ride, uh, not like a fun train ride, but like a travel train ride from Manhattan to Vermont, which sounds amazing. So uh, enjoy that. that ride. Yeah, we we're in right a now. room. We're in a room without any windows. Yeah, we have no windows, so not quite the same. <laughs> yeah. So talk to us about the book. So I I I don't know what a Cylon is. Uh, and the the title of the book is is intriguing and interesting. And so, if you could just give an elevator pitch of what this book is about, the high level idea, uh, you know what what kind of compelled you to write this? You use the word apocalypse. I mean, there's a lot in that title. So, if you could just kind of give us an elevator pitch about what's going on in this work. Sure. Um, well, if you take a look around at pop culture right now, it's all about the apocalypse. Um, so we wrote the book two years ago, and since then, lots of things have come out even since then that have been about the apocalypse. For instance, the X-Men movie that came out this summer literally is subtitled Apocalypse. So obviously the apocalypse is very much on the minds of people who are making TV shows and movies. And we, my co-writer and I, kind of just wondered why. We're fans of this culture stuff. We want to think about it. We like watching it and, and talking about it. So we got to thinking about it, and... Um, our big question was really, why are we so fascinated by watching our own destruction? <laughs> why are we entertained by this? And when we really dug in, what we discovered was that um, the apocalypse is something that people have been talking about almost basically since the beginning of time. We've always been telling ourselves apocalypse stories. Um, and what we discovered is that stories about the apocalypse are usually there to tell us something about ourselves today. So they're about the end of the world, but they're about us now, too. Um, and once we dug in, we, we decided to use um, the work of Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, quite a prominent philosopher, um, who writes on um, secularism and postmodernism and um, sort of the way we think today to interpret and, and talk about what our apocalyptic pop culture tells us about ourselves today. And it, what it tells us about um, maybe giving some ideas of how we might move forward or, or live um, in our, you know, 
in our apocalyptic imagination as a society. So by the end of the book, we're not just talking about ourselves and what we watch on TV, but also about things like politics and, and, uh, and culture. So when you talk about apocalyptic stories telling us more about us today than the future, can you kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit, maybe even some examples? So what what is a particular show or movie that does this and how does it do that and what does it actually reveal about us? I think that would be a good a good conversation. Yeah, sure. Um I mean, the interesting thing is that in stories of apocalypse, especially the way, the way we tell them today, we really what we're asking is what what are people at their core? So in a story about an apocalypse, right, usually what happens is the niceties of civilization have been stripped away. So we think of, for instance, something like The Walking Dead. We put zombies in our subtitle because we think zombie stories are a really good um, example of this. So in a zombie apocalypse, Usually, you know, something has happened very rapidly to make civilization just disappear all of a sudden. And what we're left with is people just trying to survive. And then the questions that come up and that a lot of these stories play out are, if we're just trying to survive, what does that look like? What, you know, are we, are we basically good? Are we basically wicked? Are there different kinds of people? Um, is the meaning of life found in relationships? Is it found in religion? Is it found in power? Um, is it, you know, found in sort of violence? Um, and then how do civilizations get built? Zombie stories are almost inevitably about civilizations um, sort of rebuilding themselves in some way. Does it look like, um, you know, some? does it look like a dictatorship? Does it look like anarchy? Does it look like... Um, you know, families and tribalism. And so so apocalypse really is just about stripping away, you know, whatever it is that keeps the thin veneer of culture, the thin veneer of civilization, and trying to imagine what lies underneath. And different kinds of stories have different ideas about this. Um, but what is interesting is sort of seeing how different uh, storytellers sort of game out, as my co-writer likes to say. They, they, they sort of play around with different ideas about civilization. I, just last night, I was at a screening of um, The Purge election year, which is coming out this weekend, and I was kind of fascinated by the idea that The Purge, the concept of The Purge is that there's this civilized society, it's set in America, but then for 12 hours every year, overnight, they all laws are suspended just for 12 hours. And it sort of says, like, what, how would people react and what would people do? And, it, I mean, it's a violent film and not a particularly good one and I wouldn't recommend anyone see it but it's another example of like like a mini apocalypse that we're thinking about so what do we the question then I think that's interesting is as Christians when we watch shows movies like this that have particular views of the human person have you know the to use Jamie Smith's language visions of human flourishing that sort of thing you know they're all they're all kind of telling us what the end goal maybe of humanity is you see things like power in Game of Thrones um, it, it's all over the map I guess depending on what it is but so what do you think like what do we as Christians kind of do with that as we consume these things as we watch these things is it's it's got to be more than just an opportunity. To, to share the gospel, obviously, you know, do we, to what level do we engage with it? You know, uh, is there a point at which we don't engage with it? If we so strongly disagree with kind of what 
is being communicated there. Um, you talk a lot about this in your book, but I'm interested in you elaborating on that. Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways it's no different than any cultural thing. If we just consume it mindlessly, I think we're like missing the point of stories entirely and what they're there for. Um, I think though that like one thing we that's that fascinated us when we were working on the book was we discovered um, when we were doing some research that uh, almost until the 20th century, um, or at least till the 19th century, almost inevitably, stories of apocalypse were about um, sort of judgment being visited on us by God or by the gods. Um, like we had, you know, they just had 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 enough of us and we can think of like the story of Noah for instance as a good one where it's like there's just too much wickedness and we just need to hit the reset button um, and so the the gods or God kind of come down and wipe us out and start over again in some way um, and what we discovered is that today we were mostly telling stories where humans um, take themselves out somehow maybe we invent a technology or Cylons for instance are basically robots that we created to serve us and then they turn in that on us and start chasing us. Um, and, you know, the zombie apocalypses are generally a virus that it, we invented as a cure for something and didn't realize that playing God would actually destroy us. And these are, this sort of pattern is repeated throughout our stories. So I think that's really interesting for um, us, uh, for modern Christians in particular, to think about because, um, you know, it, it's, it tells us what people are anxious about today, where our anxieties lie, which is not so much that, oh, you know, we're going to be judged um, by some kind of lightning bolt throwing God in the sky, but that, like, we have the power, uh, we've created kind of the power for human race to um, to eliminate itself. Um, and I think, like, looking at these stories and sort of seeing that those patterns exist helps us to understand, well, what are people actually concerned about and what you know, what does Scripture have to say about that? What are those anxieties, and how are they answered in Scripture? And an interesting thing is that, and we, we were talking about a so-called secular apocalypse, but an interesting thing in all of our stories um, that we're telling is they almost inevitably turn toward some kind of uh, search for transcendence or for sort of a meaning beyond just human life in order to give an answer to this. Uh, so Battlestar Galactica, for instance, I don't want, I'm not going to give anything away, but the um, the answer lies beyond just the humans and their civilization. And um, there's a turn towards this in Game of Thrones right now, for instance, where, you know, it was a very secular kind of godless society. And now they're moving towards this magic and religion is back. And what, you know, how does that interact with the way we, we are thinking? I think we can see that in our culture, but it's sort of um, created in microcosm in our pop culture, too. You know, just as we kind of shift the conversation a little bit, maybe away from the book and more towards art, film, those types of things, it is interesting, and you guys have both fleshed this out already, how art, culture, what we are producing as a people is revealing where we are, the angst in our hearts, the collective um, sense or frustration or curiosities and questions and worldviews. I mean, so it, it... as you as you kind of talked about, Alyssa, to just passively consume is really to miss what's being pushed, um, or or questioned or asked, and and so to actively really to engage in criticism, a healthy criticism is to 
find out what people are saying and believing and struggling with and and revealing. And so there's so much in there, and, and not all of, clearly not all of it's great or uh, or prudent or fruitful or wise, but but it is interesting to see what the culture is producing, and there is a sense in which the culture is wanting to get beyond itself to something bigger and grander and trying to use it, what it sounds like uh, a lot of these stories to describe that. So as we talk about art uh, in the broad sense, and then we'll we'll kind of narrow it back down into film, th- this is your world. You're the expert here. I'm clearly not. Um, what, what do you think constitutes art? Like what what is art? Why should Christians be partakers in art? To what degree? Um, I'd yeah. love to hear yeah, your thoughts. Why, why is art important yeah, why for is Christians? Important? Why would you encourage Christians yeah. to, to be involved and care about I, You know, it's like, um, it's such a funny question because it's like asking, like, what is true? <laughs> you know? You can, um, you can tackle that question so next. Answer. answer the art one, then we'll get to what is true next. <laughs> and then we'll do what is true. Well, so my students always, uh, I, you know, I, I teach sort of a course on cultural anthropology, so it's a question that always comes up is, well, what is art? And they, that answer shifts all the time. And some people talk about it like art is anything beautiful, which is not true, of course, because lots of art is not beautiful. Um, or, you know, what is art? Is it things that are decorative? Well, no, of course not. Not all art is decorative. The answer I can come up with, um, and sort of the working answer I use is, art is the product of human culture. It's the thing that humans make that uh, requires a viewer's uh, investment of themselves in order to complete it. So an artist makes a thing, a song or a painting or a story or whatever, and and they make that thing because it's the way that artists explore the world. It's like their way of knowing. Like some people uh, analyze things. Some people, you know, maybe they scientists discover the world through doing science, and artists discover the world through making work. Um, but then in order to really become a work of art, I think it needs an audience of some kind. And the audience brings their own context to it, whatever that looks like. So the way that I listen to a song by the Beatles, I'm hearing it through a different set of ears than my grandparents were hearing it. Um, but neither of them, I think, is more legitimate than the other. It's just that the work of art sort of changes depending on who's looking at it and who's experiencing it. And the beauty of criticism is that um, it's just people experiencing art and then trying to express what it is that, how they experience it uh, with the hope of having other people experience it in a new way. So, so art is the thing that we invest ourselves in and it helps us see the world in a different way um, or it helps us pay attention to things that we might have missed otherwise. And I think that last one is the most important one for um, a lot of Christians to understand in particular uh, because we believe that we're called to... Um, pay attention to the world we're in, because it's a, it's a good thing. God said it's good. He created it. Um, and there's also lots of brokenness, and we need to attend to the brokenness in order to um, know how where we belong um, in the work of healing brokenness. And so art can really help direct our attention toward things that we might miss otherwise. And this is why, for instance, a lot of critics might find it frustrating when people say things like, oh, that movie was just too slow you know, or nothing happens in it, uh, and so I didn't, I didn't watch it, or I didn't enjoy it, or I, I don't like it, and it's, you know, it's like, okay, well, sometimes you're not in the mood for that kind of a thing, but also um, films that are slow, for instance, 
um, or things we might term boring, sometimes are there to direct our attention towards something that we're going to miss otherwise, that we might not see. Um, and so great art tends to do that. It, I think it was Roger Ebert, uh, who wasn't a Christian at all, who said that um, he knew a movie was a great one if he left the theater a different person than he was when he walked in. And I love that. I think that's exactly right. I think if we experience a work of art well, if we're open to it, then we are shifted in the process. Yeah. And kind of having that framework for what art is, and you even mentioned in talking, you even started to differentiate between good and bad art. Um, I think an interesting question is what what makes something good art? Um are there objective standards for art? I think as Christians, it's easy when it comes to, you know, what is true, what is good. And then when we think about beauty, um, beauty always tends to be this thing that culture and even Christians think is somewhat subjective. Um, right. It, at, what is objective and, you know, what can we judge art based upon and then what maybe is subjective then? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I, I feel like I spend so much time thinking about this. I I mean, some things are beautiful to me that aren't beautiful to other people and vice versa, right? So I can't, uh, so much of what I find to be beautiful is based on what I'm bringing to a thing itself. So that's part of why it's so difficult to talk about beauty as if it's this objective thing. It's just not. Um, it's so bound to our culture and our, our preferences and, and the way we were raised. But I do think that my my standard for what a great work of art is or a good work of art is is one that would um, make room for many types of viewers uh, to invest themselves in it to find different meanings. In fact, some uh, you know that's why sometimes maybe ambiguous isn't the right word, but I like to use the word capacious. Um, so if a work is capacious, then it means that I can see it. I, I you know I always talk in terms of films because that's what I spend most of my time with. I can see it. And I take away something from it that is um, maybe personal to me in some way. And then my my grandma could see it and maybe have a different reaction to it. And then somebody who uh, grew up across the country from me in a very different context um, might have a different kind of experience with it. But a great work of art kind of makes room for all those people. And I think um, like Shakespeare, for instance, is a great example of great theater and part of the reason Shakespeare is so important is because we still we are living in a context nothing like it was a beast in England but we still can continue to reimagine ourselves in Shakespeare's work and that's significant that's important and conversely I know work is bad and I I um you know as a critic I tend to mark it down if you want to call it that if the work only has one clearly thinks it only has one possible correct interpretation and all other interpretations are wrong. Um, that's not art. It's something else. Um, but it's not art and the form of forms of art, the mediums of art, uh, don't suit themselves to didacticism so well as they suit themselves to uh, exploration and kind of open-endedness and, and provoking people rather than feeding them information. So let me ask you this, and uh, I'm kind of thinking and wondering how you would respond to this because it sounds like there can be, and we'll just take films that have tremendous yeah. mass appeal and, you know, they are box office hits, the uh, millions and millions of people are seeing it and spending money, 
But I'm wondering if you would say that it could have mass appeal and hit a large swath of people on this side of the pond and the other side of the pond and different socioeconomic classes and still not be good art, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I tend to think of those things as like the equivalent of an amusement park ride, um, which I don't think necessarily means it's a, it's a bad thing, right? Uh, I mean, I enjoy a roller coaster as much as the next person, um, but it's not maybe, I mean, I, I, I ride on a roller coaster and then I get off of it and I never think about it again. And right. my world is not fundamentally, in fact, it is, if it is fundamentally changed, something's gone very wrong, right? Um, I, it's just, it's just, uh, it's cotton candy. It's something fun to do. And if I were to do it every day and find my meaning in it, you know, if I were to find my meaning in, in riding at roller coasters, well, that's really unhealthy for me. I become kind of an adrenaline junkie. Um, and in the same way, like, purely gorging ourselves on those things um, without having them really move us in any way just leaves us kind of shallow and um, unable to really uh, understand the world in any way other than our own. Um, and I think that art is so good at helping expand our our capacity for empathy and our capacity to imagine the world in new ways uh, in a way that a roller coaster just can't do. I think that that that's helpful and and I think really good insight. Um, and and it's you know it's not to say like for instance a Pixar movie might make a gazillion dollars and work as a work of art as well, but yeah. that's that's why would make what makes it so remarkable. Yeah, and, and and your work as a critic and and obviously we mean that in the most positive sen- sense is one mm-hmm. who interacts critically with art and doesn't simply consume it passively. You're helping us, equipping us to think about these things rightly, not not just in a yeah. passive sense, but uh, so that we're not just gorging ourselves with cotton candy and being content with that. But you're, I, I, I see your role, and, and David does this as well, of pushing us to, to want more and draw more out of what it is we're consuming. And so let, let me ask you this as it relates to Christian art, and, and even if you like that category, if you, if you think that's a fair category, if there's just art that has Christian themes, but let's talk about Christian movies. And I'm sure uh, in your work, you interact with this all the time. And so what are the, what are the challenges? What are the problems for Christian filmmakers? Uh, is it just that the, the writing isn't great? The acting isn't great. The story isn't compelling. Like what's the struggle? Why, why is this a challenge or do you not think there's a problem at all? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's a bunch of challenges and um, I think we, for a while, have thrown up kind of a red herring or people have said, oh, don't judge that movie because, you know, they were just doing their best and they didn't have a lot of resources and so the acting isn't as good as it could be. And the thing is, like, I go to film festivals and see low-budget movies all the time and they can't afford great stuff. Um, and everyone kind of knows that and, you, you know, you understand that resources are a big part of how a work of art gets made. And so you give it a pass. I think the, the real problem is twofold to me. Um, one, and probably the biggest, is that um, most um, movies that are made for a faith-based audience commit the same kind of problem that most uh, Hollywood movies do, which is that they just don't, they don't aspire to be art at all. They aspire to be kind of a product that uh, conforms to the already formed desires of their audience. So we know what this market segment wants, and we're just going to give it to them, and that's even 
turns out to be true a lot of times of like smaller Christian film productions. So, you know, you cannot swear in a Christian movie. You just can't do it, right? And if you do, it won't be marketed to that audience. Um, and and that's, you know, that's a thing you can do, but you can hardly call it art most of the time. And the, the flip side of it is that I think um, a lot of aspiring Christian filmmakers really do feel hamstrung by their audience uh, insofar as there's a, cer- of ex- a certain set of expectations they often come into the film with. For instance, there must be a clear message uh, in favor of good and not in favor of some other, you know, whatever the contrast to that is. Um, it must be for, it must be uh, accessible to lots and lots of different kinds of people, um, but in a kind of a bland way, the same way that a Hollywood blockbuster tends to just be as, as kind of broad and vanilla as possible. Um, and that the audience on top of it tends to get, you know, quite upset if it doesn't fit that. Uh, and not in a way where it's like, let's not go see it, but in a way where it's like, we're going to question these people's eternal salvation um, for making it, right? And right. this is really tricky because, of course, a lot of great Christian art from the past wasn't like that at all. Uh, this has never been you know, easy for anyone. Flannery O'Connor wrote lots and lots in the middle of the 20th century about the problems with sentimental fiction that she ran into um, as a Catholic writer in the South. And so it's not like this is some kind of a new problem that's just only existed. Um, I do think the third problem, though, and this one really does bug me, is that the way, um, I, you know, I think there's a place for family-friendly fare that kind of affirms your beliefs that you already hold and makes you feel good. I don't think that's necessarily wrong all the time but the way that the films have been marketed especially in the past few years um and this is definitely a marketing thing is okay well let's convince people that they are somehow morally wrong for not liking this but you don't like this and that says something about your soul and like that's just not true and it's also not fair uh it's manipulative um it sort of is a you know, it's it's sort of building a straw man and then burning it to the ground. Um, and this is something I see quite a bit is people sort of, they, lots of people don't like the film for various reasons. Maybe I'm thinking of certain films that represent, you know, uh, sort of the antagonist in a really unfair way. Uh, but they feel like, oh, bringing it into question is something that I am not allowed to do because uh, because of peer pressure. Um, and that's marketing. That's 100% marketing. And I think that is actually, um, that's a big problem that I think people need to speak up about uh, because it it is for money at the end of the day and for market share. Um, and that's not ethical. And it's it's few of like Christian movies of all movies shouldn't be subject to that. Yeah. And I think one of the issues as well, and that kind of comes out in that last point, is that Christians tend to think of movies and art, or not, not all Christians don't want to generalize, but in terms of as a message and kind of neglect the form, the vehicle um, that's present. That, that seems to be, at least from an audience perspective too, seems to be an issue. And that's why you get, well, if the message is good, then the movie is good. But that, we know that that's not necessarily true. Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, and it's one thing when it's, you know, a little kid comes home from Sunday school and they've made a a, a work of, you know, they've painted a, a little painting and you're like, this is great. You know, you're trying really hard. But if a grown up um, says that they're a painter and yet they've never progressed beyond the sort of four year old like Jesus loves me stage of art, then 
um, then we, you know, we say, well, maybe, you know, take some lessons or, or go to some museums and start to learn about uh, the medium. And I've had, I've actually had Christian marketers um, and publicists say to me, gee, we really wish that uh, young Christian filmmakers would go through the festival system and, you know, try showing their work in places that aren't just, you know, <laughs> churches, um, because we'd love to see that voice um, become part of the conversation, but a lot of people skip it. Um, they, you know, they don't submit their their film to a festival, or they don't uh, try to get feedback on it, uh, because they just, it, it's, you know, sometimes it can become an idol, is the idea of, like, I'm going to make a movie, it's going to be in a theater, people are going to love it, it's going to be amazing. And that's just not what art does. Yeah, and on... On the flip side of that conversation, when we think about quote unquote Christian films or faith based films, I'm always interested, probably even more, and I know that this comes up in a lot of your writing about, I guess, uh, movies made by non Christians that are quote unquote Christian, and even sometimes way more Christian than the movies made by Christians. Um, do you see that? And what are what are some examples you think of filmmakers who may not necessarily be Christians? But you think that a lot of what they're making is Christian in a sense? Uh, yeah. Um, I the the one that I always think of is um, Jeff Nichols, who his films are like he had Midnight Special come out this year, um, which is which is a really lovely uh, sort of family based. It's about a family uh, sci fi movie. Um, or he also made Take Shelter and Shotgun Stories, and I frankly have no idea why he's not a much bigger deal than he is. Um, his movies are really, really accessible and also just great American stories. But um, he's, I know he's not a Christian. I interviewed him in Berlin this year. He's very, he's very comfortable with saying that, you know, he grew up in Texas, and he he had a, you know, a kind of a church background, but he's just not comfortable with it. Um, with it now, but he definitely makes movies that are just haunted by this idea of, um, of the transcendent and a world beyond our own, and what does that mean for us and for our souls, and I think that his films deserve to be much more widely seen, and they're also a good example of like great, great works of art um, that open up a lot of questions, and that can also be seen by many kinds of people without feeling like you're being preached at. That's that. That's actually really good, really helpful. Let me let me ask you two quick questions before we go. One, yeah. So David, David here with us. He writes. He he's, he's criticized films and written and done all that kind of stuff. He's not terribly fun to go to a movie with. Are you fun to go to a movie with? That's not very nice. It's just true. Like we go to a movie with David, and it's kind of like. Okay, tell us all the reasons that that what we missed and was like. Are you able to actually enjoy the films? And I, do people I enjoy, enjoy going with y'all? Oh man, I um. Well, the funny thing is, I'm almost always seeing movies before they come out, um, and so I'm seeing them with a bunch of other critics. So half the time, I get on the subway with a friend who's going to be writing about it as well, and we we pull the the movie apart um, while we're on the subway on the way home. I keep joking that we should have a podcast where. It's just me and whoever I'm riding the subway with talking about the movie we just saw. But I do think I'm I'm okay with it. Uh, the it's good to know there's hope out that, there. Yeah, just yeah. at some point I had to learn like um, that most people 
I think most people just take longer to get to that point <laughs> than, uh, you know, you just had a really good time. And like the last thing you want someone to be like, yeah, well, <laughs> but then at the same time, yeah. um, take I also, note, David, I, I, take note of that, <laughs> of that encouragement. I love a lot of really help. bad movies. Too. <laughs> so let me ask you this. Okay. So you get to see everything before we do. What, what should we be on the lookout for this summer and later this year? What, yep. What's coming that you go, you got to see this. And it's not the purge right based now, on what you just said. No, it's not. Um, gosh, this year. Oh, there's so well, Hunt for the Wilder People came out last weekend okay. in limited release, so it should be making its way out. I love this comedy. I thought it was so funny. Um, it's set in New Zealand and it's about a little boy who's a foster kid who sort of ends up with this gruff older man, um, as his only family and they go on an adventure. Um, and I just, I thought it was so clever and so funny and I really liked it. Um, and then also the movie, um, life animated is coming out this week or next. Um, and that one is a documentary. Sorry, there's a child in the string cart. Um, that one is a documentary about, um, about a young man who is severely autistic and who, um, he and his family need to learn how to sort of communicate with one another and help him navigate the world. And he does it through Disney movies. Um, and it's really just a beautiful film. I think people, people can learn a lot about um, autism and then also about the kind of how a community pulls together around, you know, somebody who has different kinds of challenges. Um, and then the last one I saw that I... Um, I, I don't know how many people are going to hear about it, but there was a film called Don't Think Twice. Um, and it's Mike Birbiglia, who's like on This American Life a bunch, and he had that movie Sleepwalk with me a while back. He wrote and directed this movie, and it features a bunch of like famous comics. So um, Jillian Jacobs from um, Community is in it, and Keegan-Michael Key, and they all are a little troupe of... Um, like a little stand-up comedy troupe. Um, and really this story is, a, is about this group of friends who've been together forever, and then one of them starts to have actual success, and not all of them have success at the same time. And it's sort of this question that hits you right around your early 30s if you work in a creative field at all, which is like, what if we don't all right, have right. the success we were imagining, but, but one of us does? I've almost never seen that uh, in a film before, and it's sort of struck me yeah. as like a really important question that doesn't get asked a lot and it's very funny and sweet um so i'm looking forward to people seeing that yeah that's awesome well Alyssa, thank you so much for being on the show and we just hope you have safe travels as you make your way up to vermont and appreciate your work and your writing and you're you're kind of helping us along the way as we interact and engage with film and art and criticism and all of those types of things and so thanks for being on the show yeah Alyssa, really 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 appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with us. And it's finally good to get to actually chat with you, not on Twitter yeah, or email. We're real people. We are all we are real, real people. people. Let me say this. If you're listening, we, we would encourage you to check out Alyssa's website. It's AlyssaWilkinson.com just to find her writings and also pick up a copy of her book. Again, thanks so much, Alyssa, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, David, so you, you've been involved in every single one of these episodes that we've done. I mean, you're the producer of this show. You kind of help book all of our guests and help outline a lot of the content and then part of the conversation. And so as we're thinking about favorite moments of, or favorite episodes on this particular podcast this spring, what, what kind of 
stood out to you? Was, was there a theme? Was there a conversation, a topic, a speaker, whatever it was? Is there something that, that really jumped out to you? Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that all the episodes were pretty strong, but of course, you know, there are particular ones that stand out. And for me, I think, while I really enjoyed Romo, I think on a personal level, the the episode 29 with Timothy Keller was especially encouraging just to hear um, his vision, his church's vision for planting churches, for loving and spreading the gospel throughout New York City. Um, I think the thing that stood out to me was the the open-handedness that he shared. You know, just uh, I was I was surprised, honestly, that they would be willing to work with churches that, you know, may not even line up with them on certain theological issues. So not just even philosophy and practice, but theological issues. You know, he used the example of uh, infant baptism. You know, they had someone who couldn't get on the same page as them, but they were still willing to to send them out, let them plant a church, and for the sake of yeah, for of the, the sake gospel, of the gospel, for the sake of the city. Yeah. To me, that was just really humble, really um, unique and different. Not something, unfortunately, that you hear a lot within Christianity, specifically evangelicalism. So that that episode especially stood out to me. And then you know the conversation with Smith, Jamie Smith was. I believe the next episode was really good too, but I, I'm a fanboy of Jamie Smith. Yeah, so you are. That's kind of a yeah, good. That was your episode. You, you wanted it that. You set been. that whole thing up. No, and I appreciate that. I, I, I'm I'm grateful really for all the guests because in every episode that we've done, there's been something that stood out to me, and I'm not just saying that because I thought every episode was great. There were some that were stronger than others, and some that were a little bit more appealing or maybe um, eye-opening than others. But but each one of the guests really brought something that pushed on me in some way or compelled me in some particular way, whether it was a a story about faith and football and talking with Tony Romo and just seeing how he's grown in his faith and how he's uh, really beginning to use his platform for the sake of the gospel. Man, that's encouraging to me. Uh, Andrew Wilson, as we talked with him on episode 26 about ministry in the UK, parenting kids with autism, you know, just to see how he and his wife have been faithful to suffer and what they've learned through that. And in light of the local church, he's just super sharp uh, and how they engage over there, what we can learn from them. But I think you're right, man. The The one with Keller was, um, as, as we are thinking as a church about next generation, about multiplication, about planting churches, about Dallas-Fort Worth, for him to push on us directly— you know, to directly, yeah, he, he really did push. He kind did. Of, kind he of directly pushed yeah. on air and off air. Yeah, <laughs> uh, about um, that there are some liberties that we can take in Dallas, Fort Worth, that they cannot afford to take in Manhattan um, because of the climate and the culture, and that is eventually coming our way. And so, what are we doing to prepare for that? And I thought the Rise campaign was compelling. And and if he and I were better friends and had more conversations like that, I think I would push and pull a little bit more to to press about what it may be like in Dallas and what some of the challenges that may be unique here, uh, given our culture. But there's so much to take away uh, from that particular episode. And, and you know, the other one that stood out, and, and honestly, I think for good reason, was um, the politics one, as we talked about yeah. engaging politics wrongly and rightly. And, and as, as it's a very clear... Um, <laughs> confusion and somewhat of unrest in this political season to think about and remind ourselves that we are first and foremost citizens of another kingdom before we're citizens of this kingdom. 
that Jesus is, is still reigning and ruling on his throne, regardless of who sits in the White House or what Supreme Court justice is on a bench or whatever it may be. It, that That's a refreshing reminder over and over and over again. And to use Jamie Smith's language, it's a it's a liturgy that that we've got to practice to to be a rival against the cultural liturgies uh, that so easily want to take shape in our hearts. Yeah, so. and that, I mean that particular episode got a lot of traction because, as you're seeing, I just feel like everyone is just kind of sitting back right now and waiting on <laughs> the right words, the right wisdom from someone to kind of give them direction right now politically. Because, like you're saying, it is a confusing season. And I hope, you know, this is a good transition to kind of think about the fall with the podcast show. Um, But I really would like to do more in that area, too, maybe bring on some different guests and continue to talk about that subject as we head into the election. Yeah, Um, and and because you're the boss of this show, you're the producer of this show, as you remind us all the time, that you're you're the one who finds the (laughs) – you're the one that gets the guest, finds the guest. And comes up with the great ideas, and I know that you're eager to kind of press this conversation forward. I would just say to a listener, if you if you have a great idea, just email David and uh, and float it our way. But I am looking forward to the fall because I do think there's going to be a lot to talk about, especially as it relates to the American context in what is a, an unprecedented election year. And so, hey, we're grateful that you gave us your time today on this particular show, and, and we are going to take a break and move uh, to to start recording new episodes in the fall. But Uh, By way of reminder, if there's anything that you heard us talk about today on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find those details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. You can just look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. And as we said earlier, uh, we're taking a break for the month of July, and we'll be be back recording new shows in August. And though we're taking a break for several weeks, if you have a question in the meantime, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll see you in a month. God bless. God bless.